Well, it's a joy to share the word with you tonight. We are in our series in Acts. We are in our fourth week here. I was contemplating some things this week as I was preparing this message. And I don't know why, but there's a, prob- probably a scientific reason for this. But we have this ability to remember traumatic events. And it seems to be a universal truth. Uh, kids have this ability to have things burned into their memory. Um, sometimes surprising us as parents, right? When they can recall something that happened to them when they were like three years old. Any parents here who can like attest to that? Like, how did you, how do you know that? You were only, you were only like six weeks old. There's no way you could have known that. But they have this ability to do that. And actually... We all do. Um, all of us can remember even, um, you know, tragedies that have happened kind of on a national level. I remember watching the Challenger uh, shuttle disaster on live TV. I remember watching that. I remember waking up at about 8 a.m. on a Tuesday morning, my roommate knocking on my door, and he's saying, Danny, get up, turn on the TV, and that was... September 11th, 2001. And you all have personal experiences, big and small, that you can recall and you can remember where you were and how you felt. You can remember the words that were said and the thing that happened. And for me, it was 1985. I was in the eighth grade at a school on a military base in a village called Chicksands, England. Anyone know where that is? No. It was a little base 50 miles north of London. And we had just moved there. And uh, I was halfway through my eighth grade year. And the holidays just finished up and the new year was starting. And then, boom. I came home from school one day and learned that our family was going to be boarding a plane within about a week's time. Me, my mom, my two brothers, and no dad. Dad was going to stay behind, and I didn't know why. My world was falling apart like that. This is not happening. I'm enjoying school. And whoever says that, right? I'm enjoying school. I have friends that I like. I liked my teachers. I liked where we lived. I liked my life at the ripe old age of 12. And it was so sudden and so shocking to me. I I couldn't even process it. And um, as a result, I, I didn't even get to say a proper goodbye to my friends. And so we arrived in Hawaii, just the four of us. And I had to start a new school in the middle of the school year. And uh, I felt alone and ashamed because I didn't know anyone, and uh, I didn't know what to say to anyone about my situation. And, you know, we're a family, a military family, so we're used to moving, but not like this. You get preparation. You get to know what's coming up, but this was not what happened to us. We were not prepared for this. And I probably cried, uh, wondering, why is this happening Why isn't my dad here? I was confused, scared, angry. God, why are you allowing this to happen? 
And the early church probably had something similar in their mind because of tragic events that are going to be taking place. And some things were happening that were not planned from a human perspective. Initially, things were looking really good for this early church, but things were going to change due to some certain tragic circumstances. And like I said, things look good at the outset, right? In the first few chapters of Acts, we see this early church growing as a community of believers. They dedicated themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer, it says in Acts 2. They had everything in common, and they sold property, giving to everyone who had need. And they enjoyed the favor of the people, and God was adding to their number every day. Miracles were taking place. The crowds were gathering to hear about Jesus. Demons were being cast out. Sick people getting well. Peter and John standing up boldly, going before the Jewish council, getting reprimanded and walking away with their lives and going, whoo, awesome. The Holy Spirit shaking buildings, exposing corruption and empowering people to proclaim the good news of Jesus, the Messiah. But things have been brewing in the background, and tragedy is going to strike. And we're going to read about Stephen in more detail here, because um, we actually first encountered Stephen uh, in our chapter last week, in chapter 6. And he was appointed by the apostles to take care of the administration of food for the widows. There was some stuff happening where there were certain widows not getting really the distribution of the food, so um, they appointed him among seven to go and make sure that took place well. And he was a man full of grace and of the Holy Spirit. And uh, I have to believe that he was a gentle and humble man, uh, being that he served the poor and the needy. And he also performed miracles. And Stephen's love for the Lord and for people started to attract the attention of some people who got upset about this. They conspired to basically take him out. And he was brought before the Sanhedrin, a.k.a. the religious authority, to ultimately get him killed. And what happened next would spark a movement in the church to light up the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, turn to chapter 7 of Acts, if you have your Bible. There's a lot to cover in this chapter, and uh, we're also going to jump into verse, uh, chapter 8, okay? And so we're going to do this in chunks uh, rather than verse by verse, uh, so excuse me for doing that, but we kind of need to do it to kind of get through our time here uh, tonight. But after today's message, I encourage you to read those two chapters verse by verse. Take some time to go through that. And uh, before we get into this, so let's, let's pray, all right? Let's pray together. Lord God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. All right, so it starts in chapter 7, and uh, it says, Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? Are these charges true? Notice that Stephen doesn't even say no. 
And he says, brothers and sisters, or brothers and fathers, listen to me. And he addresses them with respect, brothers and fathers, but listen to me, okay? There's, there's a little bit of, uh, I'm going to get your attention now. And what are the charges that they're levying against him? And uh, it's bad guys. These bad guys claiming, uh, it's actually more of a conspiratorial thing, but I can't say that word without fumbling it, so I'm just going to use bad guys, okay? The bad guys are claiming that Stephen said that Jesus would destroy this place, the temple, and that Jesus said he would change the customs of Moses. And they were saying this, that Stephen was trashing and bad-mouthing the core of their religious beliefs and even their own Jewish history. And he was being accused of two things here in this passage, um, starting in verse 7. He's accused of doing two things. He's accused of going against the law of Moses that was given to them by God. And he's also accused of going after the temple where they worshipped. So he didn't answer the charges directly, okay? Instead, he gets them, uh, he gives them a history lesson. And uh, they didn't have a Wikipedia back then, okay? But if there was a Wikipedia entry for the very first time, this is, this is Stephen doing it for Jewish history. And uh, can imagine that, right? Brothers and fathers, listen to me. And he reminds them of the very beginning of their own story with three names they all know very well. And those three names are Abraham, Joseph, and Moses. And starting with Abraham, covered in verses 2 through 8, Abraham is this patriarch of the Jewish people, and they trace their lineage all the way back to him. So he's held with this utmost regard. And God is, in fact, known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So very back, very, uh, back to the very beginning, Genesis, Adam, uh, Abraham called out of the land of Mesopotamia, the fertile crescent, and um, God calls him out and gives him a couple promises. He says, I'm going to give you a land to possess that's your own, and I'm going to give you descendants to possess that land. And it's pretty cool because Abraham at this time doesn't even have one child yet. And by the time he has uh, Isaac, it's, he's 100 years old. But as Stephen tells the story, things start to get sad. God tells Abraham that his descendants will come to a sad period in their lives. They're going to be ruled as slaves for 400 years. Let's read verses 7 and 8 of chapter 7. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said. And afterward, they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. So God is setting the stage, and he's moving things in place to save the world. And Abraham doesn't get to see the big picture. He can't, right? He's got a limited perspective. He's got kind of a 2D perspective like you and I do. We do not see everything. But God is going to use this seed, this offspring of Abraham to bring about the Messiah. And Jesus is going to come through the line of Abraham 
some 2,000 years later. So God gives Abraham a sign about this promise of a seed. And he gives him the covenant of circumcision. And this symbolizes God's promise to Abraham that he's going to bless the nations of the world through Abraham's seed. And God is going to do this with no strings attached. He's going to do it with an unconditional promise. And God's going to honor his end of the promise regardless of how Abraham or his descendants act towards him. It's a good thing, right? I mean, the story of the Israelites wandering the desert for 40 years, that would have ended up really bad if God was a conditional God. So back to Abraham. It wasn't Abraham's works that was going to make God fulfill his promise. It was his faith that God can and will fulfill his promise. And Abraham believed God would do what he said. Abraham was justified by his faith, not by his works. And Abraham's faith was in God, not on his own righteousness. That's why Paul says in Galatians 3, 6, So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Can you imagine if you were the Jewish leaders hearing this? They were all about being self-righteous, holier than thou. Their works, their rightful inheritance. You know, we sing a song here during services. Um, lyrics go something like this. I don't know if I'll try to sing it. Maybe I will. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. Right? We sing that song. We who are followers of Christ don't put our trust in what we do, the rituals we, we perform, or <gasps> religion. <laughs> we put our trust in the name of Jesus. Can I get an amen on that? Yeah. Stephen was trying to drive this point home to the Jewish leaders. It's not our religiousness that saves us. It's not our customs. It's not our works. It's not where we worship. It's not the temple we've built. It's God who saves us. It's his mercy and it's his love towards us through his son, Jesus Christ. Well, Stephen didn't stop there. He's on a roll. He's going to drive the point further. He's going to turn now to Joseph. And if you don't know the story of Joseph, it's about how God can turn the evil that people do and turn it into good. Let's read verse 9 together. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him. Yep, that's right. Joseph was sold out by his brothers to slave masters. I want you to let that sink in for a moment, okay? His brothers sold him into slavery. And God used this tragedy of Joseph being sold out by his brothers to actually save his brothers. As Jesus was condemned by his own countrymen, Joseph was condemned by his own too. 
Joseph was sold for pieces of silver. Sound familiar? And God was involved in this tragedy in Joseph's life to bring about good. See, he was sold into slavery so he could ultimately save his family. There was going to be a famine that would hit the land that would have surely killed his family. In fact, Joseph told his brothers many years later, they didn't know it was him that saved them, but he revealed himself to them. And he said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. It's Genesis 50-20. There's like this principle. It's called the 50-20 principle. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. God used it for good. And the story of Joseph is a picture of Jesus. Joseph sold into slavery was God preparing to save Joseph's family and to protect the seed, the lineage that would ultimately lead to Jesus. And God gave his only son, Jesus, so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus sold for 30 pieces of silver, crucified on a Roman cross because he loves you so much. And God can accomplish, accomplish his work in the tragedies you experience, just like he did for Joseph. Can you trust him to do that? Now Stephen turns, though, to Moses. And Stephen gives an overview of Moses' ministry to the people of Israel and how the people of Israel fell back to their ways. And speaking about the Israelites, Stephen says in verses 35 through 39, I'll read that. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received living words to pass on to us. Pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. Well, in much the same way that Joseph was rejected by his own brothers, Moses is rejected by his people. And the Bible tells us that they grumbled and complained to Moses. And even as he went up to Mount Sinai to meet with God, the Israelites made an idol and worshipped it. And they refused to obey Moses and ultimately God. And Moses is also a picture of Jesus. Moses, the deliverer, was rejected, and so was Jesus, who would deliver all people from death. In the same way that the Israelites rejected Moses, how unsurprising that they would also reject Christ, the deliverer. And Stephen is making this very clear to the Jewish leaders. It was only a few years before that that Jesus even told them he was the deliverer. Jesus got up in that synagogue. It's recounted in the, in the Gospel of Luke. And he read out of that scroll, and he read Isaiah in the synagogue. And Luke 14 records this. And isn't it interesting that Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, 
would have, you, have this captured in his gospel in Luke 4, 18 and 19. The spirit of Jesus getting up, reading from the book of Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to pro- proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he said, this scripture is now fulfilled in your presence. Stephen's telling them that this, it's always been about Jesus. Don't you get it? And having made his point through their own history, Stephen finally goes all in. And he goes for the indictment. No more Mr. Nice Guy. It says in verses 51 through 53. You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through the angels but have not obeyed it. Stephen basically says three things to them. He says, number one, you have rejected the Holy Spirit at every turn. And he says, you have killed those who proclaim his name. You have broken the law, not me. And then that's when things got real. And let's read what happens next in verses 54 through 60. And when the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing of him. They are clenching their jaws in hatred towards Stephen. And I think Stephen knew what was going to happen. He could read the crowd. He could read the body language. Standing before the Jewish leaders, he saw the looks on their faces. He felt that rage emanating from them. But the Holy Spirit was with him. And so he looked up to God. Says he was filled with Wisdom and the Holy Spirit. He looked up to God and they dragged him out in this illegal execution. They couldn't do that. They weren't allowed to execute him. But they did. They dragged him out and they stoned him. And, he's, and he's doing, as they're doing that to him, he talks to Jesus. He has a conversation. Lord, 
Do not hold this sin against them. Another reminder of Jesus. You remember that? Luke 23. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Tragedy hits on this day. And Stephen became the first Christian martyr. And I have to imagine that this community of believers was in utter shock and disbelief as to what just happened here. One of their own has just been executed for being a follower of Jesus. I can't, I can't even imagine what's going through their mind. God, how can you let this happen to Stephen? He was full of grace and compassion. He was humble and helpful to so many. Why? Why did you bring this on him? Why did you bring him all this way just to be murdered? Why did he have to die like this? What's going to happen to all of us? Why? Why did I have to get on a plane and leave everything? Why did I have to go away? And when we landed in Hawaii in June of 85, my mom got connected to KCC. And I was on the fence. I remember going to the youth group when it was being led by Lee Roberts. Who, does anyone know that name, Lee Roberts? No? Okay. Well, Lee Roberts was the youth leader at that time. And feeling so small and lonely, I, was, I sat in the youth group. But the walls slowly came down for me. And I started to connect deeper to a church family that really cared for us. And I was still upset, I was still angry, I was still scared. Uh, no denying that, it didn't change overnight, but I can look back on that though and uh, see how God moved before we moved. And he made sure that we somehow showed up at KCC to meet Pastor Harold Gallagher, who helped my mom through this difficult time as well as many other people here. And we had a place where we can attend English services and my mom could go to the Vietnamese language services downstairs with Vietnamese Christian Church. And I love this pastor Toch, picture of Pastor Toch. Do we have that? Uh, Kwong sent it to me. And um, here he is. He's posing on the set of uh, Magnum P.I. That's Larry Manetti, who is Rick from the original series. No, no, no. It's not. That's Pastor Jerry. That's Larry Manetti. I, when I saw that picture, I'm like, he looks like Rick from Magnum P.I. I thought it was hilarious. I thought I'd show it to you. Pastor, Pastor Tach reached out to us, and uh, it became the start of a special friendship for me, and um, with Quan and his son, and uh, I count Quan as one of my best friends. A place where I could belong in spite of the circumstances. Today, I can look back at that time when my life changed, and I had to get out of a box. I was pushed out of a box. And as a result, I got to experience a wonderful church family from then until now. And I get to share that testimony with others. In fact, I had the privilege to share that testimony to a young man who told me his family was broken. Just a few short weeks ago, in fact. And God moved me to share my story with him because I saw similarities with my story and his. And as I shared my story, it, it resonated with him. And uh, I talked to him about a heavenly father 
who's in the business of putting broken things back together. And he prayed to receive Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And sometimes when God moves us out of the box, we don't see the results right away. But God sees the beginning and the end. God has a three-dimensional view of everything. We've got a 2D view. He's got the 3D view. He sees the beginning and the end. And in his timeline, all things come together in perfect time. God always moves on your behalf, not always as you want him to, not always when you want him to, but he is able to do in you more than you can ask or imagine. And he can accomplish his purposes through you. Even in the tragedies you're going through or even have gone through. So here in the tragedy of Stephen's death, we see Paul standing there. He's called Saul before his conversion. And he's nodding with approval as these men murder Stephen. And the author Luke makes it a point to introduce Paul right here. For the first time, we hear about this man named Saul, who would become Paul. And we're going to read more about this very important person in chapter 9 next week. But right now, we know he's not friendly towards the church. He's not friendly at all. In fact, he's got a righteous anger towards them. He's going door to door and he's pulling men and women out of their homes and throwing them into prison. And that was pretty, that was pretty uh, extreme, even for that time, Thro- pulling the women and throwing them into prison. But on this day that Stephen is stoned, a great persecution breaks out. And this early church is moved out of a box. And it's being scattered, but God's in charge. And he's ready to release his church now. And let's read in chapter 8, verses 4 to 8, all right? Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. And when the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks and pure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. And this tragedy has become the catalyst to move the church outward. And they were scattered as God intended. And we read the story of Philip. He was also appointed along with Stephen in, verse, in chapter 6, going now to Samaria in the north. Even Peter and John went north and they had an encounter with uh, a sorcerer, a magician, the David Blaine of his time, I guess, um, who wanted to buy the power of the Holy Spirit. And you can read more about that. We're not going to touch upon that tonight, but that's in chapter 8, verses 9 to 25. It's a fascinating story. But let's read about Philip, though, being sent on a road south out of Jerusalem. He goes to Samaria, now he's going south, and um, it's a road that leads to Gaza, okay? Gaza is on on the coast, but he doesn't make it there. Uh, Because he has an encounter straight away. And we're going to read this in verses 26 through 29. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. 
So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake. Your translation may say Candace, okay? Um, this man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. And this outbreak of persecution moved Philip out, moved him out of the city, moved him out of the box. And the Holy Spirit prompts him to go on that road, out the gate of Jerusalem, on that road, and uh, he eventually runs into this man, a man of a different ethnicity altogether. Isn't that something? To share the gospel of Jesus with him. This man is reading the book of Isaiah, and he doesn't understand it. He's confused about who Isaiah is talking about. And in verse 35, we read, Philip began with that very passage of Scripture. He got in that chariot and told him the good news about Jesus. For God's kingdom to reach the ends of the earth, it requires the un boxing of a movement out of its starting place in the temple courtyard in Jerusalem. Moving its way out of the front gate and into the city of Jerusalem and out into the countryside and into the neighboring cities to provinces and kingdoms to the ends of the earth. It started in a way that no one could predict. But God knew. God moved them out of the box. And whatever you're going through, know this, God is there, working behind the scenes, and he's always moving, and he's moving before you are, and he will use you and your circumstances, the tragedies and the triumphs, to perhaps move you out of your box so he can display his mighty works, and he has been, and he always will be moving, and Jesus He calls us into a relationship with him. As God moved this church out of the box, he can do the same for you to move you in a direction you need to go. To move you forward into a place where he can work in you and through you to reach others with his love.